talked about this issue of standards and convictions because of so many different things that we've had going on. Uh, but I want to, and, and we, are gonna, we are going to talk about that tonight, but we're going to kind of sidestep just a little bit and address uh, something that I think is absolutely important uh, in this discussion and something that we need to talk about before we really get any farther. And I, I find it interesting that any time, uh, uh, or not any time, but many times when a person starts to preach about or implement standards in their life, there's no doubt going to be accusations of legalism uh, leveled at the person who decides that they want to have those standards. And uh, the, uh, many times a person that rejects standards based on true biblical, biblical convictions will claim their liberty in Christ and everybody else is just being a legalist, right? I'm sure you've probably heard that before. So I think it's very prudent and wise for us to have a discussion on legalism before we move any further in this study. So without, without um, any further ado, I guess, I want to give you some thoughts about this idea of legalism tonight. And the first thing then is to define it. What is legalism? When we're talking about legalism, what does that mean? Uh, you talk to 10 different people, ask them what their definition of legalism is, and you'll probably get 10 different answers. Um, but, but we'll make the attempt at doing that tonight. If you look at it in a classical sense, historically and in a theological context, legalism is requiring some form of works as necessary for salvation. That's, what, that's the true definition of legalism. We are trying to use works as a means to salvation. You look at it historically, and, and there have been a lot of church bodies and councils that have deemed some form of obedience to the law as necessary to obtain or to keep salvation. We've talked a lot about uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, and we see a lot of religions that have laid down, this is what you need to do. You've got to keep this law and that law, and you've got to do this thing and that thing in order to get saved or in order to stay saved. We know that salvation is only by grace through faith. So legalism is opposite of grace in soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Um, and so when we're defining it in that sense, but legalism in relationship to salvation is not the only kind of legalism. If you go back to the root of what it's talking about, legalism is really an undue emphasis on something that is legal or illegal, on rules and laws. And in soteriology, again, when we're talking about the doctrine of salvation, it, add works, it adds worse works to grace, but in Christian living, it contains really an unhealthy emphasis on the specifics of a certain ordinance as, as compared to the larger aim, um, uh, a larger purpose or a larger intent of the law and rule. And I'm going to give you a couple examples in just a minute that hopefully will help that make a little bit more sense. But a man can hold to a scriptural concept of salvation, salvation by grace through faith, and yet in practice be a legalist in how he operates his Christian life. Uh, he does that by becoming fixated on exact conformity to the letter of the law, but at the same time practically ignoring the whole point of the law or the whole point of the rule that was meant to accomplish. And so the word legalist or legalism is not found in the Bible. Um, but the, the, the philosophy, this errant philosophy that I've just described is found in the Bible. And for instance, Paul explained the necessity of avoiding that philosophy here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, verse number 5. <clears throat> Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Verse number 6, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter but of the Spirit. 
for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. In essence, I think what Paul is saying is that we should not be preoccupied with the letter of the law, but with the intent and the purpose of the law, the spirit of the law. And of course, that doesn't mean that the specifics of the commands that were given in the Bible don't matter. The specifics absolutely do matter in the Bible. Um, but it also doesn't mean that, the, that only the specifics matter or that the specifics matter more than the aim and the intent of God's instructions for us. I think the best illustration of that in the Bible is the Pharisees in the New Testament. In fact, turn over to John chapter 18. This is something I think often we overlook in the story and, and, and in the entire story. It's actually a very small thing, but in the context of what we're talking about, it's a big thing. They were masters at emphasizing the letter of the law, and completely ignoring the spirit of the law. Uh, for example, think about their conduct during the, the trial and the assassination of Jesus. That's, that's exactly what it was. Uh, Jesus' death coincided with the Jewish observance of the Passover. And that was, a, that was an, observant that, uh, an observance that required that they get everything unclean out of their house, out of their lives, um, they had to be ritually clean when they took part in this observance of the Passover. And one of the things that brought defilement to a Jew was uh, contact with the Gentile. They were not allowed to contact in any way a Gentile. And not only were they not allowed to contact the Gentile, they were not allowed to, to uh, according because of how, how they took this out to the letter of the law, um, uh, they were not even allowed to touch anything that a Gentile owned or that a Gentile might have actually touched. That's how strict they were about this law. But now they find themselves in a quandary because they have Jesus and they have to bring him before the Roman government who was made up of all Gentiles. And so now, at, at one point, the Sanhedrin marched Jesus to Pilate's judgment hall in order to face this Roman scrutiny. And in doing that, the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin faced this difficult problem. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. Uh, it was a holy day that the, the lambs were sacrificed. All things were being made ready. They needed to remain ritually clean so that they could partake in the Passover. But now they've got Jesus, and they have to bring him into a Roman hall of judgment. So now what? Now what do they do? They had to bring Jesus into Pilate, who was a Gentile, they had to go into the judgment hall, which was run by Gentiles. There was many things in there that the Gentiles would have touched, and all of those were things that they were not allowed to do if they were going to stay ritually clean so they can be a part of this Passover. They dared not cross the threshold of the judgment hall, or they would become unclean. So they gathered in the courtyard outside of Pilate's judgment hall, and he came to them. Notice what he says there in John chapter 18. This is what I'm saying. This is a a detail that's often overlooked in the story, but I think it's pretty interesting in this context. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. That's pretty interesting. A lot of times you read through the story, and you just jump right over that, but that's actually very important to them. They were not allowed to go in there because that would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to eat the Passover and all those other things. So bear in mind that they have for some time been actively conspiring to arrest Jesus, to kill him, to try to, to, try to make, him, uh, make him out to be this villain. When they knew that he wasn't, he just had upset their religious apple cart, so to speak. He jumped into the middle of their political and financial uh, means and way of life and it upset them and so they were out to get Jesus. And after, after all of that, earlier in the examination, they had actually 
sought witnesses who they, because they couldn't find anybody who could specifically accuse Jesus and, and be an actual witness, and I'm not going to take the time to do it, but in Matthew chapter 26, they actually hired people to go and say, yes, I saw him doing this. Yes, I heard him saying that. And that's the only thing that they could come up with. But here in the middle of all this murderous and illegal things that they were doing as far as trying to get Jesus killed, they're preoccupied with maintaining ritual purity. Tell me they didn't miss the spirit of the entire law. They kept the letter of the law. They remained ritualistically pure because they didn't cross the threshold of Pilate's hall of judgment. He came out to them. But here they are in the middle of all of that, staying ritualistically pure, trying to kill a man who is innocent. That's a definition of legalism. And so that's, they, they were obsessed with keeping the specifics of the law and at the same time ignoring the entire point of the law. So how do we find legalism in the conservative Christian? Because we do sometimes. So having explained what we've just talked about and, and, and given you some illustrations of that sense of legalism from the Word of God, I want to show you how it can come into your life and how it can come into my life because it's possible. The independent Baptist world, by and large, is, is a conservative one. I don't mean that in a political sense, although that is true in a political sense. Most independent fundamental Baptists are uh, politically conservative. But I'm, what I'm talking about is, is, in a religious standpoint, our Bible version is very old. Our music is old. Our approach to church services is old. Our education is old. Our philosophy of leadership in the home and in the church is old. And so what ends up happening from, from many of these people that want to be part of the new evangelical crowd or the new independent Baptist crowd is, uh, you know, they, they, they uh, have often labeled us by uh, or as traditional and old-fashioned and conservative. And by the way, those are labels that I, I, I'm not ashamed of. Call me old-fashioned, right? Uh, the church that we grew up at had a, on the sign out there in the front said an old-fashioned, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church. That's about as, that's about as, as good as you can, uh, good a compliment as you can give somebody to call them something like that. But, but uh, we believe in and we're attempting to conserve what our fathers have handed down to us. And we believe it's to be good, to be good and scriptural. But this old-fashioned or conservative approach to Christianity is also seen in the standards that we set. And we put up a fence. We establish a rule that will help us to abide by our convictions. And that's all good. Those are all good things, as we've talked about before. The problem in this context, and what we're talking about here, is that the standard or the rule can become the point. And if we come an end in and of itself, and not only can it happen, I would argue that many times it has happened. Um, and if there's, you know, I'm certainly... Uh, I'm not ashamed by any stretch to be called an independent fundamental Baptist. Uh, but over the last 50 years, there have been a lot of things in independent fundamental baptism that, that have stepped outside of, I believe, the bounds of what the Bible gives us as the rule of life. And in many instances, followed very strictly to the letter of the law, but missed the entire point of the law, so to speak. Missed the spirit of the law, as Paul is talking about here. And that's, it becomes a, becomes a measuring of obedience to a standard, and it's very easy to do that, right? Is, is your hair a certain length on the men? Is your skirt a certain length for the ladies? And, and also getting people to abide by a standard, I think, is, if not exactly easy, it's, it's at least easier than dealing with wrong attitudes and thinking of, of, of an ungodly heart. The intention is good. 
the fence is there to preserve us from crossing over that cliff and going over that cliff, but the fence has a tendency to become the point. Those who stay on the right side of the fence, those who abide by the standards become right. Those who don't stay on the right side of the fence, those who don't abide by those standards become wrong. Let me give you an example. A lot of, a lot of bigger churches, uh, and, and even the church that I grew up in, um, often have large bus ministries. Most of the time, they'll have a college as well, and, and, and the reason they do that is because it gives the college students a ministry to work in. It's a great ministry to be a part of. We're trying to grow our bus ministry here as well. So, but what happens is they, they often bring public school kids in on the bus, and uh, again, that's, that's the whole point of it. We're trying to bring in people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who can get saved, have their lives transformed and changed and everything else. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that at all. If there was, we wouldn't be doing it. But they are usually teenagers that have been won by the bus captain or by somebody who works on that bus route. They had no background in the Word of God, let alone you know, the many benefits that come from being raised in a Christian home. And if you could see a lot of these kids that, that were saved, that came in off the buses, and when you go by and visit them on Saturdays and see the home life that they come from, it's just, it, number one, it makes you so thankful for, for what, what you had, especially for me, for, for the home, home that I grew up in. But they have no spiritual guidance at home whatsoever, and so they come in on Sundays, and that's all they get for the entire week. But you go back, and, and obviously they don't have the benefit of, of being raised in a Christian home, and so their music, their entertainment, their values, their priorities, their goals, their entire outlook on life is entire worldly. And in Paul's way of saying it, their understanding was darkened. The only thing that they have been enlightened on is salvation. They come in, and I think many times they genuinely get saved, but that's it. They don't know anything else uh, about the Christian life. And because they're teenagers, they were moldable, or at least more moldable than many adults are. And so it's not unusual for one of those kids to come in, to get saved, to get baptized. The bus captain gives them a King James Bible, teaches the young men how to wear a tie and a you know, suit coat to church, teaches the ladies to wear a skirt, and all of those other things. And you know, within a few short weeks of them being reached, and so the tendency many times in, in bus ministries, and, and I'm just using this for an example because it can happen in a lot of ways, is to think then that that life has been transformed and that life has been changed and now they're, you know, now they're this great Christian young person. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but what can be a bad thing is the immature understanding on a bus worker's part that they've succeeded in changing that teenager's life when in fact they haven't done anything at all. That teenager got saved and they're training them and teaching them how to do some of those things, they had succeeded in temporarily conforming that teenager's life during one narrow slice of the week to represent their own lives. And again, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to try to teach them and train them on those things, but it doesn't mean that their life was transformed just because they conformed to a certain way of dress or a certain, uh, a certain way of talking or living or anything like that. And so standards, by definition, lead to conformity. That's what a standard is. But conformity is not spirituality. And that's where many Christians, especially in the independent fundamental Baptist world, have missed the entire point. Conformity is not spirituality. And so many people think that because they conform to a standard, well, now I'm spiritual. And their heart and their mind and their life is so far from Jesus Christ. They've conformed to the standard they stood by the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. And I think it's so important. Yes, I believe in standards entirely. I wouldn't be preaching them. I wouldn't be living them if I didn't believe in those things. 
But just because you conform your life in some way to a visibly measured standard does not mean that you are maturing in Jesus Christ. And in this context, it's not legalism to emphasize a standard. It's legalism when the standard becomes the means by which we measure the spirituality of those who get saved and start to grow in Jesus Christ. The letter gets overemphasized, while that which should have been highly emphasized, the heart, is underemphasized. Which brings me then to the third point, the cause of legalism. And I think this is an important uh, concept for us to understand here. Legalism, as we've defined it and, and illustrated it here, in, in my view, is caused by two things or two aspects of an unbalanced emphasis. One of them is an overemphasis on separation combined with an underemphasis on holiness. Uh, the Bible mentions separation. Actually, it more than mentions it. It talks about it a lot. And, and there have been many, many books that have been written about the idea of separation. I have a whole lot of books on the topic of separation on my shelf, in my, on my shelves at home. Um, there's ecclesiastical separation. There's personal separation. There's secondary separation. There's seemingly, se- seemingly a never-ending uh, necessity to produce more books on that subject. And, and please don't misunderstand me. The, the, most of the concepts in most of those books are good. We do need separation. We're commanded to be separate. We're commanded to be different from the world, and so that separation is absolutely necessary. And I've been helped by reading those books and studying those books. But in doing that, we as a religious movement have placed an emphasis on something that is fairly fairly peripheral in Christianity uh, and in the Christian life. And I'm not criticizing separation at all. I'm saying that we should place the emphasis where God places the emphasis. He does not place the emphasis on separation. God places the emphasis on holiness. And that's what I guess that's what I'm talking about with this entire idea tonight is just because you conform to a standard does not make you spiritual. Uh, I think it helps. It moves us in that direction. But the whole point is an emphasis on holiness. If your emphasis is holiness, then you will mature in Jesus Christ. And you will do those things, not because somebody tells you you have to, but because you want to out of a desire to live for and please God. God places that emphasis on holiness. Is separation a part of holiness? Absolutely it is. Is it an essential part? Absolutely it is. Can a person grow in holiness without living a separated life? I don't think so. God's holy and he's clearly separate from evil, separate from sin, separate from sinners. But while separation is discussed at at, at most several dozen times in the word of God, the concept and the word and the idea of holiness is in the Bible over a thousand times. And I think if I were to count up all the messages that I've heard on separation and all the messages that I've heard on holiness, I think it's actually flipped. I've heard many, many messages on separation and not a whole lot of messages on holiness. Maybe a few dozen on holiness, but a thousand on separation. And I'm not saying that separation is not necessary. It's absolutely necessary. But separation really doesn't count for anything if that separation does not stem from a life of holiness. That's what legalism is, and that is the cause of legalism. We overemphasize the letter of the law, we overemphasize the standard, and we underemphasize what is behind that standard, what is behind that separation, and that's holiness. And that's not just words either. Words mean things. Sermons and books full of words emphasize things. 
And what our, our sheer number of sermons and books about separation has emphasized is that we should be different from the world. We should, we should be away from the world. What they've not emphasized is that we should be like Jesus. That's the whole point of why we're talking about the things that we talk about. We should find freedom from sin in our identification with Jesus Christ. God's grace and the Holy Spirit empowers us to live morally clean lives, morally pure lives inside and outside. We often think that we've succeeded when the people that we work with no longer look like the world, when the people that, that, that are part of the church no longer uh, dress and act and talk and, 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 and have the entertainment of the world. And, oh, we've succeeded in all of those things. We've not succeeded if that is our measuring stick. The success comes when the people that we're working with are holy. And then those things that are a part of all of the standards and separation and everything else stem from that holiness. If all you do is conform to a standard, then as soon as that standard is no longer there, you're no longer going to be conforming. And obviously then that meant nothing. But if your standard is based on a holiness and a conformity to Jesus Christ and a desire to be like him, then it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who lays down that standard. It doesn't matter uh, what the standards are that are laid down. You will have a desire to be like Christ. And it doesn't matter if I'm no longer the pastor here. It doesn't matter if you're in a different church. It doesn't matter any of those things because the standard was not the goal. Holiness was the goal. And conforming to Jesus Christ and living in light of eternity and living in light of that holiness is the goal. And if that's our goal, then there will be no legalism involved. So let me give you quickly as we close then the cure for legalism. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get there in just a minute. But the best place to start here is with the cure, is what the cure for legalism is not. Because the true cure is not what is so often offered as the cure for legalism. Uh, dropping the concept of standards and promoting the idea that anybody who embraces standards or promotes standards is a legalist is the wrong cure for the right disease. Uh, legalism is a, is a disease that needs to have a cure, but dropping any semblance of standards and separation is not the cure for legalism. Uh, if, if I'm seeking to cure an overemphasis on rules with an underemphasis on rules, then I've completely missed that point as well. I've not arrived at a balanced position. I've jumped into the ditch that's on the other side of the road. So I think to find the cure for legalism, legalism, we have to turn to the life of Christ because, after all, he was faced with the worst case of legalism in the Pharisees. That's what Jesus dealt with every single day. How did he address it? Well, I think the answer lies in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not going to take the time to read that entire sermon, but in that sermon, Jesus fires point blank at these commonly held pharisaical misunderstandings in his day of the Mosaic Law. And we see it all the way throughout Matthew chapter 5 with the, with the whole, you have heard that it hath been said, but I'm saying to you, right? We, we did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago. But in every one of these cases, he exposes the overemphasis on a strict obedience to this external specific combined with an inward abandonment of the actual intent of the law that he was speaking about. And that's why Jesus said, you've heard that it's always been said. He wasn't saying that it was wrong, right? He was, if you start reading through there, you've heard that it's been said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I'm saying unto you, Jesus was not saying that adultery is now okay. Jesus was saying, you're putting in such an emphasis on the outward side of it, but what I'm saying to you is, 
Man, you think about a woman to lust after her in your heart, then you've committed adultery. That's the spirit of the law. Here's the letter. You may not do it on the outside. Nobody may ever see it. It may never be that you run off and have an adulterous affair with somebody. But you do it all the time in your heart. So you're conforming to an outward law, and that's what you've always heard. But what I'm saying to you is the letter of the law is not the only thing that's important. It's the spirit of the law. It's the heart. That's the emphasis that Jesus is, is putting an emphasis on. And I think, uh, you know, a, a perfect example of that is Bill Clinton. Maybe you don't remember this. I do. I was, I was fairly young when, when, uh, all of, when Bill Clinton was the president of the United States, but I think he would have made a very fine Pharisee <laughs> if he had been alive in that day. Uh, but they questioned Bill Clinton about his relationship with an office intern, and he said what? Depends on what your meaning of the word is, is, right? Uh, he was getting into all these specifics. He, he, entire, he ignored entirely the intent of the questioning and of the rule in question, but he was claiming to uh, vigorously be abiding by it. But his problem was not whether he was following some rule about uh, what was and was not permissible with an intern. No, his problem was a heart problem. That was Bill Clinton's problem. And it's a problem with most uh, everybody in the world today. It's, it's a heart problem. It's a, it's a problem with us. He, he was in good shape so long as he had not or was not currently breaking the specifics of the law, but he was in bad shape because his spiritual condition in his heart was awful. The same thing is true. I'm not, I'm not just specifically you know, hammering Bill Clinton because we're all, a lot of us, in that same boat. I'm just using that as an example. Well, depends on what your definition of the word is, is on whether or not I actually broke the law or not, right? And, and that's, that's what the Pharisees did. That's what, that's what legalists do. That's exactly what Jesus pointed to again and again in this greatest sermon ever preached there in Matthew 25. Look at verse number 26. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Christ placed the blame exactly where the blame needed to be placed. And that was at the root of the problem. He blamed our deceitful and our wicked heart. And that's what the Bible says in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? The cure for legalism is not to drop your standards. It's not to justify an abandonment of rules and to call everyone else a legalist that still maintains the fences that you've torn down. No, the cure for legalism is a constant, never-ending, unfailing emphasis on the heart of man. Turn over to Romans chapter 6 and we're done. The cure for legalism is applying the word of God not only to the outside, not mostly to the outside, the cure for legalism is applying the word of God to the heart. Romans chapter 6 and verse 19, sorry, verse 17. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. The former legalist who has now found grace needs to get back to the other side of the fence that keeps them from going over the cliff. But the current conservative standards holding old-fashioned Baptist needs to understand that the entire point is not the standard itself. The entire point is an adherence to the holiness of Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you tonight, I'm not trying to, say, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of standards. I wouldn't be doing a series on standards if I didn't think that they were important. I think it's very important. But I also think it's so important that we understand that the standard itself is not the end. Holiness to Christ Conformity to Christ, the heart 
is the end. The standards are just a result of that change that takes place in our heart and of that adherence to the holiness of Jesus Christ in our heart. Pointing fingers at the other guy's mistake and overreacting to them does nothing to fix the problem of the heart. And that's where we have to always begin and end in any question relating to holiness. What is the condition of the heart? I don't want to fall into this category of being a legalist, not just because somebody says, oh, you have standards, you're a legalist. That's, that's typically what it's looked at. You know, that's, that's typically the way that it's defined today. But what I'm saying is legalism is, is very much alive in a lot of churches because they've conformed to a standard. And they've gotten people to conform to those standards, but they never conformed in their heart. And that's exactly what the definition of legalism is. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't put an emphasis on standards. I think we should put an emphasis on standards. But what I'm saying is the emphasis needs to be on the holiness of Jesus Christ and a conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, not just a conformity to the standards that are the result of that holiness that we find in the Bible and, the, and, and in that uh, emphasis on the heart that we find so often throughout not just the Bible, but Jesus' teachings himself, especially there in Matthew chapter 5. So as we continue forward with this series and talk a little bit more about the idea of standards and, and, and where we should have our standards set, make sure that it's not just something that, oh, I, this, you know, we're going to conform and we're going to do these things because we're, we want to look good on the outside. And we should. We should want to. We should want to. But the emphasis needs to be on the heart. The emphasis needs to be on the holiness of Jesus Christ and conformity to him not just conformity to some standard. And if, if 10 years from now you're still holding standards of, of dress and music and all of those other things, that's a great thing. But what is, the, what is the foundation for the reason you're holding those? Because you've been told that you have to or because you conform to the holiness and the image of Jesus Christ? That's what we should be conforming to. Otherwise, you start moving into that ditch on the other side of the road where you actually are a legalist because you're holding to the letter of the law but you're not conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and holding to the spirit of the law. Hope that makes sense. We'll pray, and then we'll sing our song, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the word of God and for everything that we uh, can find in it, and God, and how it's, it's just it's, it's a standard for life, and without it, we'd be lost. I thank you so much for the Bible. Pray that you'd help us to never take that, that for granted. I pray that you'd never help, uh, help us to never take for granted the fact that we have it in our hands, that we can read it, that we can love it, that we can study it. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to do that. But God, I pray that as we read it and study it, and as we take the time to open it in church and everywhere else, that we would do our best with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to have a desire for our hearts above everything to be holy and to be right with you. And God, I pray that that would be our motivation for the standards that we decide to hold in our own personal lives I pray that we do it not because we're trying to conform to some outward standard, not because we're trying to conform to some outward set of rules, but because our hearts are right with you and because we desire holiness in our lives that will reflect the holiness of God. And God, I pray that that would, that would multiply itself into many other aspects and that we'd be the witnesses for you that you want us to be as well, that we'd be a, that we have a right testimony, that we'd have a, uh, a desire to share the gospel because we live the way that you want us to live. And our holiness and our heart attitude makes us want to do those things. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be, be Christians that are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.